Let's pray. Gracious, loving, heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can trust in Christ, the solid rock, knowing that all other ground is sinking sand. And as we come to your word this evening, looking in the second half of Jude, we pray that you would indeed help us to understand the faith that we have received and the faith that we must defend. And if we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the last couple of days, it was reported that Optus suffered a massive data breach that's seen the personal details of millions of customers stolen in a cyber attack. Their CEO on Friday fought back tears as she addressed the public. She said, I feel terrible. Obviously, I'm angry that there are people out there that want to do this to our customers. I'm disappointed that we couldn't have prevented it. And I'm very sorry, and it should not have happened. Things have changed, haven't they? Internet security is now such a significant thing. It's never really been a time when it's been more important. And when there's a breach in those defences, people are actually harmed. Uh, for Christians, a similar thing applies for us when, well, when there are breaches in doctrine. We are at risk of being led astray from the truth about Jesus. And if we don't defend the faith, then the results can be eternally disastrous. That is why Jude wrote this short letter that we are looking at today and we were looking at last weekend as well. Uh, we saw in the very first sermon that he urged the readers to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. That's what he said in verse 3. And from this we saw very clearly that the, the church is under attack and we need to defend the faith. And this is where the risk lies. In verse 4, he says, I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvellous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The, the threat that we face as a church is actually from within. And the message of those who are within is that morality doesn't matter. They say that God's grace is so marvellous that anyone can do anything that they like. But we saw last week that that's not true. In fact, the very opposite is true. As we read from Titus, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. That's how we should respond to the grace of God, to say no to ungodliness. But the false teachers are attacking our churches from within and it is very dangerous. But it shouldn't be a surprise to see it happen because it's exactly what was predicted by reliable people. And so we come to the start of our passage today. In verse 17 we read, But you, dear friends, must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ predicted. They told you that in the last times there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. Jude says, this shouldn't surprise us. 
This is, it's not new news. It was always going to happen. And that is because the apostles of Jesus predicted that there would be false teachers. The, these, there were going to be men who were, would be chosen by Jesus, these men who were chosen by Jesus to be his reliable messages. They said that this was going to happen. And those apostles, well, they reported on Jesus. Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep but are really vicious wolves. That's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. And Paul said this in Acts of the Apostles. He says, I know that false teachers like vicious wolves will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. Even some men of your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following. Uh, well, they predicted it, and it's exactly what's happened. So Jude's saying, listen, this shouldn't come as a shock to you, but I am telling you, it's happening, and it's happening now. What did they say would happen about these false teachers? Verse 18, they told you that in the last times there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. The apostles said that these scoffers, would that's what they would live for. They'd live to satisfy their ungodly desires. Ultimately, what they teach and believe comes from their desires. And these desires, we're told, are ungodly. Uh, we, we like to think that people's doctrine of God comes from sort of the, the cool, calm, collected sort of factory of theology. You know, there's no emotion in it. We just look at the facts and we come up with the conclusions. But the reality is that most people don't work out their theology in a bubble. All sorts of things will be thought of about God and about the world and about humankind by the way that they feel about certain, certain issues. And so it is right, as he's saying here, that people will believe things because of their feelings. And when it comes worst of all, it's when they define their beliefs because of their ungodly desires. When they interpret the Bible in such a way that actually justifies their, their lifestyle. And so if a particular person had a consuming love of money. They might end up teaching that wealth on earth, right here, right now, is a sign of God's blessing. And so from that, we end up with the so-called prosperity gospel, where people will teach just that. And it's maybe because some preachers and pastors are blinded by their love of money. They believe things because of their feelings. Or maybe this, these pastors may have a problem with gambling or anger or alcohol or porn or drugs. And as a result, they may teach a message that avoids mentioning sin. And so we might get a very subtle version of, of what was talked about back in verse 4, that God's marvellous grace allows us to live immoral lives. Or maybe they have a friend or a relative who is actively being sexually immoral. And that might lead them to end up preaching that God is fine with any form of sexual activity or, or any form of marriage. And maybe, as a result, uh, their church might even make a statement like this one I read recently in Sydney. Our church 
embraces and celebrates the full inclusion of all people in all aspects of church life together, regardless of gender identity, sexual orientation and marital status. Any person abiding by our code of conduct can participate fully in leadership, ministry and service. And don't get me wrong, we, we are a church that welcomes all people, regardless of gender identity or sexual orientation or marital status. But because we listen to the apostles and because they are the apostles of the Lord Jesus, we, we lovingly urge everyone to turn to Jesus and to repent of sins. It's, it's out of love that we do that. We are convinced that God has lovingly spoken to us the words of warning through his Holy Spirit in the words of the Bible. And he's told us things like, like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Don't you realise that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheap people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, we seek to identify our ungodly desires so that we don't have our theology distorted. We don't want to be like the scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. But we know that we should expect that in these last times. Jude says we are in these last times as we await the return of Jesus at any time. And we know that we're in the last times because the false teachers are doing exactly what Jude is saying that they would be doing. But what else do they do? Well, he gives us some more insight into this. In 19a, he says, these people are the ones who are creating divisions among you. It doesn't take much for a church to become divided. Sometimes there might be division over things like the, like the style of the church service, whether it's traditional or contemporary or whatever. Generally, they're not major divisions. And isn't it nice that it's not an issue for us in our church here? But the bigger and more serious divisions happen over what people believe about God and salvation. The most serious divisions about God are about God and about salvation. Because these are the kinds of things that can really damage a church. And they can even damage a church denomination. And sadly, it is all too often those who are the orthodox, those who are faithful to the scriptures and haven't changed, we are the ones who are accused of schism, even though we haven't shifted in our belief. Because after all, the teaching of our church here is pretty much the same as it was 500 years ago. And pretty much the same as it was 20 centuries ago. We have not moved. But people like us are accused of creating divisions because we're not changing our beliefs to follow the new teachings of these false shepherds. They distort the word of God so that they now bless and rejoice in what the Bible teaches as sin. And then they accuse us of division when we don't embrace their novel teaching. This strategy 
is as old as the first century. And it's exactly what Jude warns here. And it's exactly what we're seeing around our country and across the globe. And as we're told here, the divisions are happening because people are seeking to satisfy their ungodly desires. And verse 19b, they follow their natural instincts because they don't have God's spirit in them. And so these false teachings and divisions are coming because they're following their natural instincts instead of the spirit of God. That's the choice they've made. They're going to follow their heart instead of the spirit of God. They haven't followed what God's spirit has said through the apostles in his word. Instead, they have followed their natural instincts. If it feels right, then God must approve, they say. Or they say, we can live this way because we're born this way. Or they might say, it must be okay because God wants me to be happy. It is very dangerous teaching. And it will easily lead to divisions. And I'm aware that each of us will in different ways be challenged by this word from God. You know, unity and harmony is a really, really good thing. The Bible speaks of it over and over again. And we desperately want to show love and kindness to a world that doesn't know Jesus. But as we do that, we've got to make sure we don't give in to the temptation to change God's word to win people to God's way. Because the most loving thing we can do is warn people about the coming judgment of God. We've got to be like the prophets of old, like Jeremiah and like Ezekiel, who, who the Spirit came upon them and they spoke the word of God and they did not hold back. Like in Ezekiel 33, it says, As surely as I live, says the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so they can live Turn, turn from your wickedness, O people of Israel. Why should you die? The most loving word that we can speak to those outside the church is, is to turn away from the wicked ways and turn to Jesus. And that is because the true faith really matters. And so with that, Jude now instructs the hearers about how to protect themselves from that internal attack of these false teachers. Verse 20 and 21. But you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ who will bring you into eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourselves safe in God's love. He's moved from speaking about the threat to now talking about how to stay strong. And he says there are three key things to do in this verse. Build, pray, and wait. Build, pray, and wait. Let's have a look at all three. Firstly, they are to build each other up in their most holy faith. They need to build up their faith. They need to build it up kind of like they're, they're strengthening a wall or they're, they're building up muscle maybe. A strong faith will protect us from attack. So how do we do that? Well, we're doing it right now. <laughs> we are building each other up in the most holy faith when we grow in our knowledge of the faith that God entrusted to us. We build up the faith when we hear God's word and when, we, when it's read, when it's taught, and when we immerse ourselves in the Bible. You know, not all... 
preaching will feel very practical. Sometimes there's no explicit kind of take-home message from every bit of the Bible talk. But often it's just about knowing God better. And that is so that we build up our faith, so that we're stronger. So that's the first one, build. Secondly, they are to pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. Or, or literally just pray in the Holy Spirit. That's the second one. They need to pray in the Holy Spirit. How do we do that? Well, I take it that we need to pray words that are consistent with what the Spirit has revealed to us in the Bible. That, at its heart, is what it means to pray in the Spirit. Uh, for example, I, mean, I think Ephesians, the parallel there in chapter 6, gives us an insight. It says, verse 18 of chapter 6, Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers elsewhere. That's verse 18. The verse before talked about the Spirit. That was verse 17. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So if we want to stand firm and defend the faith, we need to build up our faith and based on that faith, we then pray. We pray knowing who God is. And we pray based on the promises that he said to us. That's how we pray in the Spirit. So we build, we pray, and thirdly, we wait. We wait for the mercy of Jesus. We wait for the mercy of Jesus. We await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ who will bring you eternal life. That is what we have to do. We have to be patient. And just because we're waiting doesn't mean we're not active. We are busy awaiting the return of Jesus because when he does return, we'll experience his mercy in full. We will experience what it means to be declared not guilty, to be seen as pure in his sight because of the death of Jesus on our behalf. That is the glorious mercy of Jesus and that is what we wait to experience. And so we build, we pray, and we wait, and the result is, it says, in this way you will keep yourselves safe in God's love. As we wait, we're kept in God's love. There is our hope. Our hope is built on being kept in God's love. Now, the word kept can sometimes be also translated guard, guarded. See, there's security when we're grounded in the faith. And when we pray in that faith, and when we wait in that faith, there is our security. Faith matters. Can you see that from what we're seeing here? For it is in the faith that God has entrusted to us that we can have confidence for our future mercy. That's the guarantee of God's love for us. And it is deeply practical. Because when we're grounded in that faith, we can help others who have wavered from that faith. When we're grounded in the faith, we will have a strong foundation, a rock to stand on, so that we can help others. It's a bit like how when you're on an aeroplane, they say that if the masks drop down from the ceiling, fit yours first, so that you are then able to help other people. You know, The way that we are able to do that is to be grounded in the faith so that we can show mercy. Have a look at verse 22. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. We show mercy to those with wavering faith. Sometimes it will be quite dramatic. Verse 23. 
Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. It is very risky to help someone who is trapped in sin and judgment. We need to put on our protective clothing and enter the smoke-filled building. We need to pull them out from this fire that's within and, and try not to get burned at the same time. A couple of weeks ago, I had some RFS training where I had to go into a burning building. I was wearing breathing apparatus and full-on protectional clothing. And I had to go in there and the room was full of real smoke and the fire was burning in there. And I had to, in the dark, go around with a torch and breathing apparatus and find where there might be some pretend victims. I found some pretend victims and we dragged them out of the burning room. And it was quite dramatic. It was, it was safe because there was someone there watching me to make sure I didn't do something wrong but in a real life situation when the fire is much hotter and the smoke's much denser it is a life risking thing when our emergency services go into that sort of environment that is the parallel that we've got here for us as we go to help those in that situation we need to rescue people with caution because otherwise we might find ourselves lured into the sin that has trapped them already. See, the lie of the devil is that little sins and big sins are not really that significant. But we know that they are life and death. And our only hope is to experience the mercy of Jesus. That is what we need to show to others, even if they are the ones who are trying to lead us astray. We need to take care, but we need to have mercy on them by bringing them back to the faith. Well, finally, the letter ends with probably the most famous doxology in the Bible. A doxology is a bit that talks about the glory of God. Here's how it reads in the King James Version. You might, it might be familiar to you. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Saviour, be glory and majesty Dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. You've probably got a tune going around your head as you hear the words. It's a, it's a well-known doxology that's often sung at the end of a church service. Uh, we, we've, we've been singing those words for decades. And they're famous for good reason. But rather than just sort of sing them and move on, uh, let's just dig in a little bit as we come near the end of our passage. Uh, it, it starts in verse 24. I'm going to go back to the NLT. At now all glory to God, who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. Jude lifts our eyes up now to God and says, ultimately, it's all about him. It's all about God. And Why? Because he's able to stop us from falling away. In the midst of all these threats to our spiritual survival, he will hold on to us. And I've got to say, what a great relief that is. And not only will he hold us firmly, he will bring us into his glorious presence without even a single fault. Nothing will be held against us. Nothing you have done 
will be brought before you as a charge. Nothing I have done that the Lord knows about and maybe nobody else. He won't say, but Jody, those things there. I'll say, can I have a look at the list? It's like, there's nothing there. This is why we bring great glory to God, that he can do just that. Because it means that we are now faultless in his sight. No wonder we are entering his presence. How? With great joy. That, that sense of relief, the burden is off our shoulders. We come into the presence of God and there's woohoos because we know that he's not looking at our sin. He's looking at us as though we have the same track record as Jesus. Sinless. Don't, don't die and go to stand before God thinking, I'll have a go at this and, and just, just see how I go with my sin. I reckon I'm probably going to have a pass. You will fail. Only perfection is able to get you through. And that is what he offers us. Without fault, without a single fault. That is how he looks at us when we trust in Jesus. No wonder we say it's great glory to him. No wonder we do it with joy. And then in the final verse, we see more of God. Verse 25. All glory to him who alone is God our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord. All glory, majesty, power, authority are his before all time and in the present and beyond all time. Amen. We give God all the glory because he has saved us through Jesus Christ. He's done it all for us. And he is the true supreme ruler, the one who has all glory and majesty and power and authority in the past, in the present, and in the future. Ultimately, he is the true and supreme ruler. We got a real taste of royalty last week, didn't we? We have for the last few weeks, really. When we saw the royal funeral on Monday night, it was a remarkable moment of pomp and pageantry. Our late queen was so powerful that her funeral could even require President Biden to have to wait in a queue. That is her power. But she knew that even though she was the monarch, she kneeled at the foot of the throne of the true king. She knelt at the throne of the one who alone is king, to whom all glory and majesty, power and authority comes. She knew the true ruler of the universe and she submitted to him. But in the light of all this, can you see the importance of holding firmly to the faith that's been entrusted to us, which is where this whole thing started? Can you see why it matters? Because if you don't stand firm in the true faith, then you will miss out on being brought with great joy into the presence of God without a single fault. The faith matters. And it's ultimately a matter of spiritual life and death. And that is why the Spirit led Jude to write these words to the church. And it is why we must listen carefully to this teaching and defend the faith. We're going to close with a song.